It was a completely selfish endeavor. I was not feeling fulfilled in my work. I wanted more of a challenge. I wanted to do something that I thought could be bigger, could make the work world better. I think as physicians, we all want to help people. And once we land in clinical medicine, and so many barriers from an operational, from societal, from a systems perspective that we feel helpless at times. I did want to help people, but also I just wanted to do something exciting. I wanted to do something difficult. You know, I'm a big fan of David Goggins. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, so I think it's uh, life is suffering, and manufactured suffering is better than suffering that's thrust upon you. So manufacture your own suffering, go through it, come to the other side, and that's where peace and happiness come for me. Rashad, what's the worst part about being a podcast host? Um, that's a good question. I haven't thought of that before. <laughs> I would say the worst part for me is there's a general guide that people say is you should niche down and yeah. focus on one thing. And my personality is I want to get into everything. I want to talk about entrepreneurship, innovation, but I also want to talk about religion. I want to talk about identity. So for me, I wouldn't say the worst, maybe the hardest thing, and this is maybe kind of sidestepping the question you're asking, is is focusing on a niche. And essentially, I don't do that. And perhaps that's why my podcast is not growing as well as it would be if I did do that, if I made these 20-minute segments, 10-minute segments, where I talk about just, you know, investing in healthcare. Um, yeah, you and the hardest part for me is, is you know, I, 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 and maybe that's the worst part for me is forcing myself to have some episodes which are just focused. Um, and I, and I do webinars, and that's why partly I do them is because the webinars, I can be like, this is a topic for the webinar. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. You totally did size up my question. I, I, I meant to, I meant, I meant to catch you off guard there, but, uh, it's okay. Uh, welcome back to how it's met the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. Uh, this time around, we're joined by the inimitable Dr. Rashad Usmani, the current founder of health tech investors, mentor with tech stars, and so, so much more. Rashad, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm good, Jeff, and I'm a big fan of what you're doing as well. Um, and, you know, when I was your age, my focus was on simply completing residency. Um, and I was on remediation when I was your age as well, uh, during my residency. So the fact that you're doing so much more outside of clinical medicine is amazing. And I, and I commend you for that. Thanks. I appreciate it. I think sometimes I stretch myself too thin, especially in the past couple of days, as I told you, as when I sit in bed all day wondering why I went to that family medicine social uh, and had a bad bout of gastro. And yeah, not a fun experience. Uh, regardless, I'm really happy to have you here today, Rashad. Um, and as you said, your journey has been anything but straightforward. And I mean, I'm not going to tell the whole story for you. I know that you left Ontario for med school. You took a securitist path through BC for residency, then made it back to Ontario finally in 2020. Um, if you don't mind, if you could tell us a little bit about this journey and how this unconventional start to journey shaped 
uh, your mindset, that'd be that'd be really appreciated. Sure, I'll try and be as brief as possible. Sure. So I don't think I was meant to be a doctor or a physician. Why? Um, I think my personality and what I enjoy doing, solo work, creative work, going really deep into problems, doesn't fit the medical model of practice currently, especially family medicine. Um, ideally, I have two patients in a day. <laughs> And really dig deep into all of their physical and mental health issues and try to come up with a solution. Um, I see 70 patients a day, so there's a lot of tension there for me. And the way clinical medicine is designed in Canada, anyways, and the way ideally I would practice. Um, so I did my undergrad from University of Toronto in human biology and health and disease. I went to the Caribbean for med school, partly because I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. And uh, my background is Indian, so my choices were doctor or doctor growing up. Um, and I picked doctor. No engineer? No. So my dad was an engineer, and I actually wanted to be an engineer. I applied, I remember I applied to Waterloo, and it was a big thing because my parents were really... In, in retrospect, I think it's the right decision. I think being a physician has given me a lot of opportunities and I enjoy quite a bit of it as well. Um, but engineering was not on the table. So I did my undergrad in, uh, in health and disease, went to the Caribbean for med school. I didn't do well in undergrad. Uh, I think my GPA was 2.9 something or maybe 3.0. Um, so I wasn't going to get into a Canadian school. Um, I went to St. George's University in Grenada in the Caribbean. You know, I have a I have a fairly eidetic memory, um, so I've, I've been a good test taker when I apply myself. So med school was, I, I somewhat cruised through it, uh, which was a mistake to an extent. I failed one of my exams, step two CS, as this is completely on me. My, I studied for that exam on the bus drive to the test center, <laughs> so for an hour and a half or two hours. So I failed that exam, and that exam was a marker to, can you speak English, essentially, uh, in the States? I'll pause so you stop laughing at my failures, Jeff. Um, Why would you study on the bus right there? You know, I think it was hubris. Because the exam is supposed to be such an easy exam, Yeah. Um, I was like, okay, like I got this. I don't need to study for this. Um, and there was, there were exams in the past where I, I did the same thing and I did well, you know, so it was hubris, overconfidence, ego, uh, but you know, I, I got a swift kick in my butt after I failed the exam. It was, it was a screening exam essentially. So if you didn't pass, you didn't get any interviews. Um, so I, I didn't match my first year. I was about 250 K in debt and I was thinking of the paths I can take with an MD from a Caribbean med school um, without matching and what I could do to repay the debt and just you know live life. The only realistic path is to match uh, and keep trying because that amount of debt is really hard to repay with a research career or other careers. And I did not know about entrepreneurship or investing or innovation at that point. I was very focused on residency and matching. I did a year of research in cardiology under a cardiologist affiliated with Columbia. And then he kind of said, 
if you do this year of research with me, I'll get you a position in trauma medicine at one of the hospitals in New York. So that didn't pan out. I got published. I got, I think, three publications in good cardiology journals. So it was a good experience, but I was essentially a data entry person. Um, a lot of research, especially in the hospital, as you're just looking up data entry and you're, you're, you're doing some statistics, but it wasn't exciting. It was a, it was a goal to an end. So I was still a Canadian citizen. I remember I was crossing the border back and they denied my visa. They said, I don't, you don't have enough ties to the States to be there. And while I was in med school, my parents had moved to the States. So I didn't really have anywhere to be in Canada. <laughs> and Jeez. all my stuff was in New York. So after they denied my visa, and what they said is the work you're doing is a research position. So you should be on a work visa, not on a visitor visa, because I wasn't being paid for this. Yeah. So I was couch surfing in Ontario. And what I kind of learned at this point is if I want to match, I need clinical experience. So I essentially emailed and called every program coordinator in all the med schools in Canada. And I've talked about this before. I probably sent about a thousand or a thousand emails and phone calls over the four years before I passed. One of the secretaries uh, or the program coordinators gave me a list of all the clerkship rotations. And I don't think they were supposed to do this. But what that gave me is a list of where med students rotate. And so I just called people and I was like, you know, I'm a IMG, I'm a Canadian that went to the Caribbean and I just, I'm just looking for clinical observation. I was very lucky and somewhat persistent and I had a few people take me on and I'm very thankful for them. And I think they're, they're one of the biggest reasons I did match eventually. And I was in, in, in Western for a bit and then in a few clinics. I did a nephrology rotation at Western. And when I did it, nephrology, and you probably know this, they're one of the bigger departments at Western and they're very linked with the internal medicine program. I remember I met with nephrology, um, Dr. Jeb Nicar, I don't know if he's still there. Not sure. And he, he asked me, he was head of nephrology back then. And Dr. Cloud, Cordes, I want to say, he was the program director for internal medicine. Dr. Jebnikar asked me, do I want to be a nephrologist? Essentially, it was like, if you want to be a nephrologist, we'll get your residency here. Um, That's a loaded question. Back. Yeah, and I said, I don't know. I still kind of, this is going back when I didn't match. I had one interview at University of Washington for internal medicine. It was our satellite program in Boise, Idaho. And they essentially asked me, do I want to do a fellowship? And they didn't have fellowships in their site. And I said, yes, to that question. So this is, there's a few mistakes I've made by just not knowing what the other person has asked me. Or not. I probably could have matched a realistic chance in internal medicine, you know, back in 2012, if I said yes to that question. And I'll, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I realize this will take another half an hour if I go in detail with everything that happened. But essentially, I didn't match. I went back to New York on a student visa uh, for a little bit, but I came back here, couch surfed a lot. My brother matched in psychiatry, moved to Winnipeg. There's this one exam called NACOSCE. Medical schools in Canada did a study to indicate what is the best predictor of you passing your CCFP for IMGs. And they said, if you do well on the NACOSCE, you'll pass the CCFP. So the screening criteria for an interview in Canada for family medicine residency at that point was solely a high score in the Nakoski. So, you know, I studied, I did really well in it. I think I got 98 or 99 percentile. So that landed me a bunch of interviews all over 
Ontario. I got rejected from UBC. I emailed them, you know, I think I'll be a great fit for you guys. Uh, I'd love for a chance to interview. They just sent a generic email back spelling my name wrong. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. They said, thank you, Rashad. I should remember the way they spelled my name. Um, but we're, the interview slots are full. This is like in early December, late November. Early January, they emailed me, there's an interview slot open and we'd love to interview you. The rest of history, I matched there. I was in remediation for a bit. Um, past remediation it was more about reflection in medicine. Learned a lot in terms of navigation, how to be in, in this world and in the work or corporate environment from that. Was working as a full-time hospitalist at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Great group of people, good program. But, you know, wasn't finding myself fulfilled, was finding, okay, I'm missing something. Launched my first startup, grew it to about seeing 1,100 patients, a total team of 14. Didn't work out largely because the business model wasn't working and also because I was working full-time in clinical medicine, so I was working nine to five. Um, and You're taking this too this- far, Rashad. You're stealing my questions. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, okay, I'll, I'll be briefer. And then six to midnight, I was doing the startup. I closed the startup, started angel investing, and then health tech investors kind of launched because I saw a need for physicians wanting to invest, wanting to be involved, but yeah. not having a, someone to guide them through the whole investment process. There's tons of angel groups, but usually the diligence is left to the investor. Mm-hmm. There's, there's very few groups that I've found that will do the diligence and bring you along the way. Mm-hmm. So I thought the pitch competition was the perfect way to launch that, is to show everyone, you know, how do you screen startups, how do you do the diligence, and how do you invest, and what do you do after? Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll pause there. I know I put a lot of effort into the initial story, and then I kind of sped up there. Yeah. So feel free to ask any questions. Yeah, totally. I mean, you you did highlight kind of the 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 ways that your initial like circuitous experience through the medical system uh, shaped your path and how you navigate life itself. But then uh, you did talk a little bit about Clinic Up then. You do have this like entire 18 minute long video on your YouTube channel that highlights your story about Clinic Up. And it, it's a fascinating story, but if you could highlight in a little more detail as to why specifically you wanted to work on a startup uh, and why you want to take that departure from just purely clinical career, That'd be really interesting. I would also love to learn about like what tribulations you had and what led to it shut down as well. Yeah. Um, it was a completely selfish endeavor. I was not feeling fulfilled in my work. I wanted more of a challenge. I wanted to do something that I thought could be bigger, um, could make the work world better. I think as physicians, we all want to help people. And once we land in clinical medicine, there's so many barriers uh, from an operational, from a societal, from a systems perspective that we feel helpless at times. So I did want to help people, but also I just wanted to do something exciting. I wanted to do something difficult. You know, I'm a big fan of David Goggins. I don't know if you know him. I do. Yeah. So I think it's uh, life is suffering and manufactured suffering is better than suffering that's thrust upon you. So manufacture your own suffering, go through it, come to the other side. And that's where peace and happiness come for me. So I did a Vipassana a while ago, which is a 10-day silent meditation. I recommend 
people do that as well. If you're in a stable mental space, it's a lot because you're not speaking to anyone for 10 days and you're meditating for 14 hours a day. Um, but essentially, I was not happy with clinical work and I thought, okay, what what systems, processes can I improve? How can I make healthcare better, but also give myself a challenge? I didn't know anything about the business. So I said, okay, there are things we do in medicine that can be automated and should be. You know, things like as a hospitalist, I had lots of order sets. Why isn't this filled already? Like if I put pneumonia based on the GFR, the patient's history, it should just give me the antibiotic I need to. Like it's a simple algorithm. You know, medicine is an art. It's very complex. Clinical practice is very complex. But there's a lot of things we do to limit liability, focus on patients' wants, needs, patients' anxieties, maximize billing. But there are things in clinical practice that are very algorithmic. Mm -hmm. What's first line for diabetes? When do you stop metformin based on what GFR? If I'm getting too technical, just pause, because I don't know if your audience is mostly physicians, Jeff, or not. Um, no, it's a, it's all but, good. I'd love I'd love to just hear as to like what specifically from this kind of dissatisfaction with medicine led to the founding of Clinic Up. Yeah, so essentially, I landed on okay. What are some console types that are completely automated, or I can mm-hmm. completely automate and put it into a software and um, release it to the world, essentially? And I landed on travel medicine. Mm-hmm. So I wrote an algorithm to automate travel medicine consoles because it doesn't require physical. That was the birth of Clinic Up, or initially Skip Clinic, what it was called. I had a falling out with my initial co-founder, and that's why we rebranded to Clinic Up. With COVID, um, so I, we we launched Skip Clinic or Clinic Up before COVID, um, like a month before, like November, and I think COVID happened in January. Yikes. Um, so we had to pivot the model completely. And that's how I'd kind of pivoted to just general health because no one was traveling. So there was no, there was no market for travel medicine consoles. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the birth of Clinic Up or Skip Clinic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it seems like there was plenty of reason to start a travel medicine focused, like algorithmic medicine focused startup, because if you're able to replicate that process without or with as little hands on involvement as possible, you can basically churn through patients, make sure that patients get the care that they need, make sure you bill appropriately, and you have this essentially self-perpetuating mechanism to generate, I guess, benefit for everyone. But I guess what specifically led to the the peak of where it was? Because from what I remember from that video that you had posted, you also did get an offer for acquisition at one point, didn't you? Yeah, so what happened is we pivoted to mental health. Mm. There's a massive pain point still exists in Ontario and in the Canadian healthcare system of access to psychiatrists. Yeah. And the reason is there's no streamlined process to get all the psychiatrists in one place and offer them consults and kind of package it nicely for them. So all they have to do is see the patient. So what we did is in clinic up, all the physician had to do is see the patient and write their note. They don't have to do billing. They don't have to write consult notes. They don't have to order the lab. They don't have to do anything else, essentially. We, from their note, we write the consult for them. We'll order their labs. We'll order their imaging. We'll do their billing. So that model was fairly attractive to clinicians. And that's why we had quite a few physicians sign up um, and stay with us throughout Clinica. Because we had this, this, and this is one of the hardest things what 
a lot of telemedicine providers or clinics will tell you it's just recruiting physicians. Mm-hmm. There's enough patients. It's getting the physicians and then matching the demand and supply um, to make sure the the business model works out. So because we were growing fast, we we had interest. We were getting referrals directly from the nurse hotline in Ontario, Telehealth um, Ontario. They were referring patients to us, and you know we were getting contracts with some pharmacies. Um, we had a few partnerships, uh, one with Pillway, um, with Devon, a few different organizations that are doing well now. Um, so we had a six million acquisition offer uh, verbally, but what happened is, as they started digging deeper into our service, it was fairly evident we are a service provider. We didn't have much software to back our IP. Um, the six million offer was still on the table, but this is more just um, serendipitous that their their executive leadership had a family emergency and got sick, and in that time we got sued uh, for trademark infringement. There is a pediatric urgent care center in Quebec um, that said we were using their trademark and they were in French. So when they their SEO was based on Clinique Up, and when people were looking up Clinique Up, we were coming up, and their name was Up Clinic. Um, so you know we 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 thought about fighting it a little bit, and we did, and we talked to our lawyers, but it didn't seem like they would back off. And at that point. Our, our business model, there wasn't much room for profits. I think our margins were low single digits, and I didn't see a path to grow or scale. I think it could be a great lifestyle business, uh, but it couldn't be what I wanted it to be. And it also had gone so far from that automated child medicine or automated consult path. Um, yeah, I, I just had to kind of close it. And I, I, I'll, I'll pause there. There's a lot more I can talk about, and I think at some point I will. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were internal team dynamics and differences in vision and other things, um, yeah. which I'll talk about in later. I mean, like, if you, uh, I'll give you space to talk about that, right? And we'll frame it as if you had to take away like three to five points in starting uh, a startup or making sure that you are best set up to succeed when starting a startup what would you say to future founders? The team is incredibly important. Um, who you start the startup with is, is, is everything, I think, early on. You know, you can talk about the idea, you can talk about the market, you can talk about the problem you're solving, your commercialization strategy and all this stuff, but um, who you're working with is everything. So pick your co-founder very carefully. And sometimes you don't know anyone, um, to start a startup with, so you're kind of going on founder matching services or, you know, why Combinator has one. If you do do that, have a long cliff. A cliff is essentially when you divide equity within the startup or say, you know, you get 50%, I get 50% or whatever you decide to do. Have some, have, have some markers say, okay, you need to be full-time beyond this date. Um, when people say, I'll be full-time once we start doing well, you know, that that's not. It's not specific that. enough. Yeah, it's not specific enough. It needs to be time-based, not milestone-based, because the milestones will shift. And doing well is very vague. Um, so have, I would say, a two-year cliff or in a six-year vesting. Vesting Usually it's a one-year cliff, four-year vesting, but I, I don't think that's long enough at the very early stage for founders to come on. 
But ideally, you started with someone you've worked with or you started alone. You outsource initially. And once you have traction, you bring someone, which is often the better way for physicians to do it. Um, as you outsource your MVP, and then once you have a little bit of traction, you can bring someone. Else. You know, this is contingent of you don't know anyone who can build your product early on. If you know someone, that's different. Mm -hmm. But co-founder conflict is one of the biggest reasons that startups fail mm -hmm. or fall apart. So who you work with is, is very important. Mm -hmm. um, and how committed they are to the startup, to having just working with you for the next six to 10 years. And I think people don't realize you're signing up. For, it's basically married. You should be, yeah, you, you should be prepared for 10 years. Yeah. So if you're not prepared to work with that person for 10 years, then don't um, have a startup with them. And you can, you can work on it for a few, few months and see how committed they are and how committed you are to the idea as well. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, after you, I guess, exited clinic up or closed it down because of the various troubles you had with it, um, you ended up working to some degree with M disrupt as well as enlightened. Uh, I mean, both these groups allow specifically for startups to connect with clinicians or experts in a field to allow for, I guess, vetting of a health specific uh, I guess claim that the that that a startup may have. Um, so, in your perspective, or in your words, would you agree or disagree with the value add that I had just voiced, or uh, was there any value add from a physician's perspective that these different groups have as well? <laughs> no, I, I would say. It's kind of my quick answer. Okay. Um, there's a lot of physicians looking to leave clinical medicine. Mm -hmm. Consulting for startups is not a viable path to that. Why? Startups don't have the money, um, and most of them do not do well. The startups that will succeed that are invested by VCs, or even the ones we invest in, you know, we give them free advice because we're putting money in them. And, you know, $500 here and there, that's not a viable path to. Fair. What, what I would recommend physicians who want to get into investing or into the startup ecosystem, you know, give your advice for free, but limit it to like an hour every other week or an hour a month, something that's reasonable. You know, don't, don't give too much advice for free. You can take equity. You can charge for it, especially if you're in a very niche specialty. You know, you're the only one that does I don't know, in, interventional mitral valve replacements or something very esoteric, very specific, then yeah, you, you can charge for your expertise. But that the market there is more established companies, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, Roche, and, you know, big pharma, they, they will pay, they will pay you $1,000 an hour for your advice. It's not startups. So because A, they don't have money, mm -hmm. um, and B, the advice they're looking for is, is somewhat different. Usually when pharma is, or these more established companies, they're looking for advice that is more immediate, actionable. So maybe they have a product already and they're looking for a commercialization, go to market strategy, yep. or they just want to get your opinion. A startup doesn't have a product usually. Um, and depending again, the, there's a lot of variance here between a software startup versus a medical device versus a diagnostic versus a biotech. Um, but I, I think it's a great way to be involved, but it's it's not, I think it's hard to build a viable business 
from a physician perspective for that. Startups need physicians to be involved. I think that it's, it's very important mm-hmm. that we are. Um, but, you know, conferences, being part of different angel groups, um, or even just posting on LinkedIn. The way I did it, um, so I, I formally advised one startup for equity. Um, and it was the way they found me is uh, through a group called SOAP, yeah. uh, Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So, you know, you can join these groups and you can just post your thoughts on LinkedIn. Just, you know, there our workflow and the deficiencies in our workflow and our pain points are very obvious to us. Best appointments or the fact that I see 70 people in urgent care or the fact that these things could be automated, um, liability, billing, but they're not obvious to entrepreneurs. They're not obvious to software engineers or founders. So just saying those things out on a platform like LinkedIn or Twitter, I think goes along. Yeah, that's fair enough. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.